Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have J.E. Lendon on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Song of Wrath, The Peloponnesian War Begins. Everyone who listened to this show probably went to elementary school. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have J.E. Lendon on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Song of Wrath, The Peloponnesian War Begins. Everyone who listened to this show probably went to elementary school, and during elementary school you probably encountered a kind of social system or social order that looks something like this. Uh, Every day you went out to recess, and every day people fought. Sometimes they used their fists, and sometimes they insulted one another. The thing that they were fighting over was something that, in hindsight, we can probably call honor. There was probably a pecking order in your grade school. There certainly was in mine. It was a fair system, insofar as it paid no regard to sex or race or class. If you could fight, then you could gain honor, and you could achieve a pretty high place in the pecking order. If you could not fight, then you were likely to be what we would probably call subordinate. Interestingly, at least at my grade school, there was not a lot of bullying. In other words, people who could fight and therefore had honor did not humiliate those who did not. Rather, they often fought among themselves. It was as if the mere proximity of a viable competitor was enough to get things going. And again, at least in my grade school, these contests were constant among the larger and, I guess we might say, braver of the students. And when one student defeated another, that student was expected to humiliate his now-defeated opponent. Usually this involved something like saying uncle, and that, in turn, called forth a desire for revenge on the part of the defeated, and so it continued endlessly. The story that J.E. Lendon tells is of the Peloponnesian War, that is, a series of conflicts, actually, that occurred in 5th century Greece, most famously between the Athenians and the Spartans. But the book reminded me a lot of grade school, for this is what the Greeks fought over, and they fought endlessly over it. The thing they wanted to do was to fight for honor, and they would sacrifice everything or almost everything for it. This mentality is profoundly foreign to us today. It's not as if we don't understand honor and we won't fight for it, But we will consider many other things before we put it all on the line. The Greeks really did not. They were much more like me and my compatriots on the playground at Price Elementary School so many years ago. This is a very insightful book, and I encourage you to read it. It tells us a lot not only about the Greeks, but about humanity. So without further delay, here's the interview. Hi, Ted. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I am very well. It's an extremely beautiful day in Charlottesville. Spring has arrived. Spring has arrived. Well, that's early. I should tell our listeners that we're talking to Ted Lendon today, and we'll be discussing his terrific book, Song of Wrath, The Peloponnesian War Begins. Uh, this book is novelesque. I can say that quite honestly. It was, uh, it's, it's, written, uh, it, it, it's written like a novel. It really is by a historian. You don't see that very often. I can't do it, and I think most historians, professional historians can't do it, but Ted can. So you can pick this book up, and it's a heck of a good read. So that, that recommends it, and I encourage you to go out and get it at your local bookstore, um, although your local bookstore may be closing. So I, I read in the news. I don't know if you followed this, Ted, but Barnes & not Barnes & Nobles, but what is it, Borders, closing their doors or something, at least a lot of stores. That's too bad. So, so I understand. It is too bad. So, uh, Ted, why don't you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm... I'm not an interesting person. I'm a, uh, a commoner garden college professor, um, went to, uh, got my um, BA and PhD from Yale, therefore was obliged to spend nine years or so in New Haven, Connecticut, 
um, which obviously does motivate you to finish your degree, uh, <laughs> nothing else. I guess the most interesting thing about me is that I grew up in Japan. That um, is interesting. Was, was teaching at a university there. And um, a lot of my friends tell me that I'm sort of trying to um, trying to apply the things that I learned as a kid about uh, manners and, and standing and things like that uh, in my work. Um, you, you know, the Romans and the Greeks are thought of as the sort of the definition of Western peoples. But it's always seemed to me that there's a lot you can learn about the Japanese, uh, from the Japanese rather, about any traditional society, and particularly a, a deferential and past-minded one uh, like like those of the of the Romans and the Greeks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you actually grew up in Japan. Yes, sir. And, and so you say your father was a professor somewhere there? What yes, he was a professor at a Japanese university called Waseda. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, he taught D.H. Lawrence back in the day. <laughs> wow. D.H. Lawrence was still hot. <laughs> yeah, I see. That's, that's, that's very interesting. I, didn't know. I, I grew up in Kansas. That's very different than Japan, but still. <laughs> You, know, you grew up in Kansas and are now living in beautiful Iowa City. That, that's right, Iowa City. It's the Athens of the Midwest. That's what we call it. Yeah, Athens. Get it? <laughs> yeah. Um, although, you know, we have a lot, there are lots of places in Iowa with uh, Greek place names, um, really quite a lot of them. So that, that's kind of an interesting thing. That, t- tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book. Well, like so many people, um, things changed for me um, on 9-11. Uh, and um, the world, I, I had grown up in the Cold War and um, was very comfortable with that uh, and very comfortable with the sort of, you know, motivations and basic expectations of, 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 of rational actors in the, uh, uh, in the international realm and um, deterrence and all that sort of type of stuff, which is still very important in things like this scholarly study of uh, international relations. Um, and then this sort of great moment of, of irrationality crashed in on all of us. Um, uh, people acting in the international arena in a way that could not be predicted, at least according to the intellectual machinery we had. And um, that sort of sits in your mind. Uh, and then you go back to reading the text you read. And um, in my case, I try to read Thucydides as much as I can. Uh, and it seemed to me that Thucydides actually became very interesting if you attempted to sort of understand him in terms of um, him viewing a world where people act in a less rational fashion and, in fact, act more like Osama bin Laden and people of that nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you could explain, to, I thought, uh, to a great degree, the causes of the war he describes – but also the um, the course of that war, uh, particularly interested in the sort of the business of the warfare, the strategies of the sides, in terms of uh, standing and revenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is what I set out to do. Mm-hmm. And I think that you you did it quite well. There's a little bit of a tradition that's associated with Yale, um, I think, of... Uh, claiming that there's a relevance to these texts. So what is the fellow's name at Yale? I can't remember. Uh, well, my teacher, Donald Kagan. Donald Kagan, yes, and he has many sons, doesn't he? Uh, who has, of course, uh, many sons who have become uh, powerful persons in their own right. Yes, right. Um, of course, Don is still teaching himself mm-hmm. at, at, at quite immense age. Um, and yes, uh, this is uh, very much uh, in that tradition, although Don himself uh, particularly earlier in his career was very much a sort of cold warrior mm-hmm. um, and had the assumptions of that period. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think he, like me, has sort of moved away from those assumptions mm-hmm. uh, and would probably now, you know, if you read his book on the Peloponnesian War, uh, it would probably seem sort of old fashioned now. But I think if he were now to write one, it would look much more probably like Song of Wrath. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a compliment to both uh, him and you, I think. Actually, that we can change in that way. I mean, we, people do change their minds, even academics. Least, yes, well, yeah. even yes, even even yeah, even yeah. academics change their minds. That's exactly very right. very good thing. Yeah, so, I, I, I wanted to talk a little bit, and this is a little this is slightly unusual for this show. I wanted to talk a little bit about sources, primarily because this book and any book that tells the story of the Peloponnesian Wars has to rely on uh, really a single author and a single text. There are other sources, and we'll talk about those, but. 
Thucydides really is preeminent and salient here. Thucydides is really how we know about these things. Can you tell us who he was and how we know who he was? And then I'll ask some follow-up questions. Well, yeah, Thucydides is an Athenian general, uh, a man of an, an Athenian of aristocratic family. We know that he has connections to Thrace, um, uh, the area on the sort of the north coast of the Aegean Sea, um, but he comes from a very grand family, and uh, he uh, grows up uh, in the period before the war, and during the war is, in the year 424 BC, a general, uh, absolutely messes up uh, in, a, <laughs> in, in a way which, which no society would find very easy to, um, uh, to uh, forgive, the Athenians were extremely cruel to failed generals, and he's probably lucky not to have ended up being executed. But he then went into exile for the remainder of the war, and um, probably a very comfortable exile, given the fact that he had all this money and um, the Greeks had no conception that, you know, if you're sent into exile, you're not allowed to actually, you know, keep taking your revenues. <laughs> he a rich man, and he employs the time talking to people on both sides of the war, which therefore gives him a wonderful, um, being in exile, he's sort of a, a, a neutral, um, and he can talk to people on the Athenian side, and he can talk to people on the Peloponnesian side, and um, this allows him basically to uh, figure out what's happening. Um, and then uh, he starts writing it. Um, he, we don't know exactly whether he starts at the beginning of the war or exactly how he proceeds, but in any event, he produces an account of the period between 431 and 411. Um, and then in the middle of a sentence, it just stops. Hmm. Uh, the war, of course, itself goes on to 404 BC. And we have a description by um, a, a follower, uh, a guy by the name of Xenophon, of the later years of the war, much inferior, because Xenophon's a much less good mind. We don't honestly know what happens to him. Uh, they're ancient, you know, rumors that survived to us oh he died or one thing or another um he may have gotten bored by it some modern people think that you know he's as much a political scientist as he is a um as he is a historian uh and that as the war grew on he figured out that he could not in fact continue to make the cases in political science he wanted to make because the evidence was standing in his way and he just threw his pen down mm -hmm. uh, possible too Mm -hmm. I see. So uh, how do we know what we think we know about him? That sounded a little bit like Donald Rumsfeld, didn't it? Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, well, it, the, the known, the yeah. known knowns yes. are what he says in his own book about himself. He refers to himself as the third person, uh, in the third person, as a character. <laughs> um, and we can deduce weird thing a little bit about he tells us that he has these Thracian connections. We can introduce we can deduce that as well from the name of his um, from the name of his father, which is Olerus, which is a Thracian name, which suggests there's a connection to Thrace. Then on top of that, you have extremely poor ancient biographies, uh, and we can never know what the status of the material in them is, whether it's simply elaborated from people who read the text or whether there is in fact any evidence that anyone had about his life except the text itself you can never know so one of these tells us for example that he has a son named timotheus uh they have all sorts of sort of details of his life we have absolutely no idea whether that's made up or not mm -hmm. so you just have to rely on what he says about himself and what he hints at uh, in in the text of his own work yeah. i mean remember we don't even know its title yeah. Uh, just call it the work. We call it Thucydides. In modern editions, it's called something like, you know, history of the Peloponnesian War, or the Peloponnesian War or something. But um, the, it's, it's, it does not come down to us from antiquity with a title attached to it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We're, we're, we, we, we have been talking about a text, but actually there are many texts, aren't there? Well, yes. Um, uh, that is to say, text of Thucydides. Yes. Um, uh, he he is he is he's not that he's not that well, but not that badly attested an author. That is because uh, people in the Byzantine Empire admired his style. Uh, he was much recopied, uh, and uh, so uh, a number of texts come down to modernity. Mm -hmm. um, but then, of course, you have to sort of sit down and try to figure out what the original text said, 
because all those guys who recopied it uh, over the course of antiquity and then the Middle Ages, before they had printing, um, made mistakes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, And so there's a whole, of course, in classics, there's a whole profession of people who do nothing but try to figure out what the original text said. These are called textual critics, and they are the persons of the highest prestige in our profession. They are, aren't they? (laughs) Well, it's because they do this really very hard and boring work. Sorry, sorry about that, but I, well, I've done a little bit of this myself with Russian sources. So It's hard. Uh, they certainly don't think it's boring. <laughs> uh, and what it is, is it requires an extraordinary knowledge of the language. Um, and remember, these are dead languages, and so there's no one to talk them to. No, um, and so that, that level of facility that allows you to look at the text and see that's an error, and that's what he really wrote. Yeah, it's an almost magical power, yep. and they those the guys who can do that well uh, deserve all of the respect to which they are given. Yes, I, I trained with a guy who did this in um, medieval and early modern Russian sources, and he, he we acknowledge that he was smarter than all of us. Yes, that's really absolutely. quite true. He was definitely smarter than all of us. Um, have scholars uh, decided that? On on an, uh, a proto text or an ur text, have they? Is there general agreement on what? Thucydides wrote? Yeah. Um, Thucydides is not one of those authors like, for example, Propertius, where the manuscripts are in such bad shape that, um, that basically it's a total mess and no, and no two people can agree on you know, the order of the lines or what any of the words say or something. Um, Thucydides, uh, of course, it's, it's easier that it's in prose and therefore you, know, you can apply a principle of logic much better uh, to what he had to have said. Um, but the standard, um, the, the, the textual situation with Thucydides is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, not only are the, is the evidence pretty good, the, the, the sources we have for it, but also the people who worked on it have been extremely talented. Um, and so if you take something like the Oxford classical text of Thucydides, um, most of it is probably what uh, Thucydides wrote. And I, for example, in the course of writing my book, of course, I have to attend to such issues, but I only found that textual problems stopped me and made me think about them, say, five or six times, Mm -hmm. uh, which is remarkably good for classics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the fellow that I mentioned was working on um, letters that were putatively written by Ivan the Terrible, and the question was whether he had written them at all. So, So that stops you right there. Yes, you don't ever really get past that question because he made a pretty good case that um, there were several things that have been attributed to Ivan the Terrible that, in fact, uh, were not written at all by Ivan the Terrible and, in fact, were written some hundred years after Ivan died. Yes. Well, you you medieval guys are always fighting that particular war about authenticity. I mean, you know, you get – we're in a world where um, if you look back at Anglo-Saxon documents, probably the majority of all surviving – Things calling themselves Anglo-Saxon documents are now thought to be forgeries of one form or another. Um, Tends not to be such a problem in antiquity because we have at least, we tend to have references to the text. So since everyone else refers to Thucydides and everyone else refers to Thucydides writing about the Peloponnesian War, when we have something on the Peloponnesian War, we can be relatively sure that even if he didn't tell us, as he does, that Thucydides the Athenian wrote this book, um, th- you do get into hilarious situations, but very occasionally where you mm-hmm. have to fight about who is the, um, who's the author. Uh, you know, that is the famous case in, in, in biblical uh, exegesis that you have Dionysius um, the Areopagite, uh, and then you have pseudo-Dionysius the Areopagite, and then you have um, pseudo-Dionysius the pseudo-Areopagite. <laughs> um, in other words, a lot of texts have been attributed to one eye. In fact, they, there appear to be multiple authors. The good news is that's relatively rare in, 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 in classics, and it's good news for me because it would drive me insane. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not smart enough to do that stuff. That's one of the I really admire yeah. you medieval guys I, because exactly of the sort of um, the difficulty of the evidence that, 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 that you deal with all the time. I started uh, my training as a medievalist, and um, I just ultimately couldn't stand the lack of fixity. Yeah. Um, and uh, I basically said, you know, I'm going to fight. If, if I keep doing this, I'm going to fight with the evidence for my whole career. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I want to do, as you could see in a book like this, to a certain degree, is telling a story. Right. And unless you have a certain amount of textual fixity, 
you can't actually tell a story because you have to stop every page and say, well, you know, he may say this or he may say that and the author may be this or it may be that. And that gets real old real fast. Yeah, no, I, I know just what you mean. I spent uh, quite a bit of time in that world uh, and then escaped it a, a little bit so just recently. So let me, let me ask this question. I don't know if you can answer it, but I always find it fascinating to ask experts this question. What is the oldest surviving manuscript that has any... Thucydides on it. And I'm not talking about references to Thucydides, but actually Thucydides' words, the oldest surviving manuscript. Oh, well, we have, um, uh, that's, that's easy to answer. Uh, we have uh, papyri from Egypt. Really? Uh, which uh, have Thucydides on them. Uh, he was not a major school author, but he certainly, people did, kids would be set to copy out Thucydides um, uh, perhaps to help with their penmanship, uh, perhaps to teach them the Attic dialect in which Thucydides is written. Um, uh, and so we have little chunks of, wow. that, of, of that nature going back, I think, I'm certain to the AD, first centuries AD, but I'm pretty sure to the, to, to the last centuries BC. That's incredible. Those must be some of the oldest surviving, they're papyri? Yeah, yeah, that, that must, must yeah. be some of the oldest surviving papyri because that's really those are very old. That's that's interesting. Yeah, very old, but I mean, you know, we start getting lots and lots of Greek papyri uh, under the Ptolemies in Egypt, mm-hmm. and um, uh, you know, it's very depressing, of course, because so many of them seem to be endlessly kids recopying Homer. <laughs> right, yeah. if, we, if we think modern education is narrow, the, yeah. the impression we get about Ptolemaic and Roman Egypt is that basically every year. Education consists of recopying the first three books of the Iliad. Yeah. And then you start again the next year, recopying the same first three books of the Iliad. Yeah, yeah, right. That's a, yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. So let's actually get into the meat of the matter and stop talking about the sources for a second. Um, we, we, we're talking about a, a, a place that we call Athens now and, and a place that we call Sparta. But one of the things I learned in your book is that they didn't call it Sparta. Or some, they didn't call the people who lived there Spartans. Is that no, right? Um, it's wonderfully complicated. Sparta is just the name of the town um, the people, uh, the nation um, is called Lacedaemon, and the, and the people were called the Lacedaemonians. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, th- they live in Sparta, which is their capital, but also in, a, in, in, a, in the larger area of Laconia, which also includes other, uh, other towns. Um, we just cannot deal with that. It has, simply has too many syllables in mm-hmm. it. Um, and so we tend to call them the Spartans. The Germans, naturally, uh, who have no problem with syllables and, in fact, love a syllable, um, uh, tend to very often call them the, um, uh, the Lacedaemonians. But in English, we just can't. We cannot cope with all those syllables. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So every, every uh, I was going to say every schoolboy, but every schoolboy and schoolgirl uh, in the United States knows that the Athenians and the Spartans lived very different lives. They were... Uh, they lived in different kinds of societies. I want to ask two questions about that. One, uh, to what extent is that a kind of a strange myth and we've stereotyped that? And then to what extent did they actually uh, represent, we, we would say, almost different principles? Yeah, I, do, I don't think it's a strange myth at all. Um, mm-hmm. I, they are, even in antiquity, uh, the contrast between them was relentlessly pointed out. Uh, it's not something we're making up. Um, the Athenians live in an exceptionally sort of relaxed way, um, and um, it's, you know, a very rich maritime society with lots of goody, goodies uh, coming in and out. Um, the Spartans, of course, live in their Spartan fashion. And they're not allowed to have money. Um, the, the men live basically uh, in their messes and spend all their time fighting and hunting. Um, tr- that very occasionally, the young men are allowed to sort of creep out, visit their wives. Um, but it's basically a society of men living among men, a barracks society. Uh, in which um, everything is uh, everything is subordinated to trying to create toughness, um, uh, and uh, was probably a genuinely horrible place to live mm-hmm. uh, if you were not one of the sort of three toughest people at the top who get to beat everybody else up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they had, you know, again, we I know a little bit about this, but they. Uh, there are some shocking things about uh, – we'll call it Spartan – Spartan society, especially the way they treated uh, young people, really. I mean, they practiced – well, you talk about it a little bit. Yeah, well, I mean, they they um, they take boys – this is the story we have from their uh, mothers at the age of seven – and they put them into barracks, um, and they, uh, um, they are allowed one cloak a year, and so far as we can tell, no undergarments at all. Um, 
and they're expected to sort of sleep on thistle down. Uh, they're not fed enough because uh, one of the things that the Spartans wished to inculcate is cunning. Um, Metis, the cunning intelligence that, of course, Odysseus is the avatar of in the Homeric poems. And to make them sneaky, um, they want them to steal. Uh, so they don't feed them well enough to make sure that they steal. But, of course, if they are get caught, they are beaten in order that they should steal well. Um, and it's just, it's a very sort of horrible prefectorial system in which the older boys are always supervising the younger boys and the um, and beating them and then the boys are compelled to do incredibly revolting things like you know sacrifice puppies uh, sort of to toughen them and 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 make them unsentimental um, a real planned society uh, of a um, to our to our mind a signal signally a disagreeable type of course one of the bizarre aspects of this is that the Spartans are always admired in antiquity, that even the Athenians basically say, you know, these are probably better men than us. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, everyone else in antiquity just looks at them and says they have achieved something approaching a perfect society. Um, And we look at it and say, Mm yeah, no, that would be tough. So, uh, so they were aware of this difference, and the and the, uh, the the Spartans didn't write a lot, did they? Do we have Spartan writers? I... Um, we start having a very few. Well, there's a famous Spartan poet, a couple of famous Spartan poets early on, and then there start being Spartan writers in the fourth century. Um, but no, I mean they are not basically. I mean, almost all of ancient Greek literature comes from Athens. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a, t- a few tiny exceptions like Pindar, um, Sappho, people like that. But, you know, all drama comes from Athens. All history uh, is uh, Athens-related. Uh, Her- Thucydides, of course, is an Athenian. Um, uh, Herodotus seems to have basically set up housekeeping at Athens. Um, and so um, we don't I mean, we don't think that the Spartans who practiced this sort of code of austerity were very interested in that type of thing at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. So let's talk a little bit about the origins of the war. Now, um, for those of you who've forgotten your um, fifth century history, and that's, that includes me, uh, I had to be reminded of it. Uh, the, the, the Greeks had an arch enemy um, prior to the Peloponnesian War, and that was the Persians, right? Yes. Um, yeah, so before, before they were enemies, they were uh, allies. Yes, well, the Greeks, Greek, Greece is always divided into very small city-states, many hundreds of them, um, and um, those city-states um, formed a great coalition when the Persians invade in 480-479 BC to throw the Persians back, mm-hmm. um, and um, then the, um, that coalition sort of continues to exist um, but basically, then Greece divides up into two sub-coalitions, that of the Spartans, which we call the Peloponnesian League, which pre-existed the Persian War, and then that of the Athenians, um, who police up a lot of the people in the Aegean who are liberated from the Persians but now need a protector, and the Spartans aren't interested in doing that. Um, so you have the, the Athenians, uh, who have a maritime supremacy with... Um, over a hundred small states, some some small, some big, around the Aegean on the coast of what is now Turkey, in the islands, and the and the Spartans who have a smaller um, but um, uh, but probably equally populous um, group of states in the Peloponnese and um, uh, in neighboring areas. Uh, each then follows their leader uh, into this subsequent war, uh, the Peloponnesian War fought between the Athenians and their allies and the Spartans and their allies. Mm-hmm. Tell us about how they came to um, blows, as it were. Well, the argument that um, that I offer up in Song of Wrath uh, is relatively predictable from the title. Uh, it seems to me that it is, to a certain degree, a question of, of people getting angry at people. Um, Greek society was traditionally highly... Um, uh, highly hierarchical uh, in the sense that um, you have uh, a sense that people are higher ranking and lower ranking. This comes back from Homer. Um, And uh, it's not just sort of, you know, how much money you have, but there's some sort of a sense of differential honor 
uh, that some people are, are glorious heroes and other people are much more humble, uh, and that this type of conception, this sort of sense of rank, that individuals are ranked, is then extended to um, their cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, Sparta is traditionally the highest ranking state in Greece, what the Greeks would have called the hegemon, which is, of course, where we get the English word hegemony. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, after the Persian War, when Athens accumulates this um, first confederation, and then as Athens becomes a more oppressive leader, this empire, uh, Athens considers itself to be of equal or intermittently of greater standing rank than Sparta. Uh, and this is something the Spartans cannot endure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you first have a war over this at mid-century. They patch it up. Uh, and then you have another war of this starting, uh, about this starting in 431. Ultimately, it happens because of the Spartans consider themselves to be insulted uh, and take revenge on the Athenians. And the Athenians simultaneously think themselves to be insulted and take revenge on the Spartans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a this is a very important point in the book, and it's one that I found quite compelling. It was a compelling reading of Thucydides because, uh, to, to modernize, when when we see these conflicts, if you read Thucydides, you can't quite understand what they're about, because they don't seem to be about territorial gain or money or women or any of these things. They seem to be about honor, and honor plays an important role in in your book and your explanation of what went on. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yes, well, honor is another way of saying rank or standing. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, if you were a Greek, you are not only anxious for your own honor, but you're anxious for the honor of your society, of your state, and that it should have more honor than its neighbors, um, and ideally that it should have the highest honor of all. Um, And uh, like in so many societies uh, in the modern world and historical societies, Honor is ultimately protected by violence. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if someone slaps you, you have to challenge them to a duel uh, or gouge their eyes out or do whatever you do in your given society to deal with that. Um, And then the the two sides will then fight over honor and one will win and will be established to be the superior in honor to the other. Um, And then um, you go on in that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is what it seems to me that they are doing. Uh, Not only is that the cause of the war, but the actual business of the war, the question of ravaging each other's fields, um, raiding each other's territory, various tit-for-tat operations in which one side attempts to besiege or besieges a minor city allied with, with the other, captures it, and then the other side has to besiege a minor city allied with the first even though none of this seems to have any obvious strategic motivation, mm-hmm. it all has this tit-for-tat structure. And it has this tit-for-tat structure because the two sides are taking revenge on each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, that part of the book, that explanation I found uh, very compelling because you really do see it in a lot of pre-modern societies, that is, pre-enlightenment societies. And you certainly see it in, I know from my own research, in, in pre-modern Russian society where there was a similar notion of, Honor and honor was the thing that needed to be protected uh, above all, and and it was nothing for the early Russian states to go to war to protect honor. Whether it would cost them a lot was incidental. They didn't think in those terms. I don't know if this is true of the Greeks, but the Russians certainly didn't. They, yes, yeah. And then there was this other business about um, humiliation. I mean, we think of this as, as something that's very cruel. So, in other words, when you defeat somebody, you do not humiliate them. In fact, mm-hmm. you rehabilitate them. But that's not what the Greeks thought. No, indeed not. I mean, the whole business of defeating the, the, the opponent is a ritual of humiliation. Um, either if you defeat them in battle, they then have to come and beg you to have their uh, to get their dead bodies back. Um, and then you get to build uh, a trophy, uh, uh, which is a, a sacred object, but basically, you know, is basically a tree stump with weapons attached to it. On at the point where the victory occurred, even if it's on their territory and because it's dedicated to the gods, they can never take it down. So that's wonderfully humiliating, obviously. Mm-hmm. But then also, if they won't come out and fight you, what you do is you ravage their territory. Uh, mm-hmm. That is to say, basically, you rip up their, you, you light their grain on fire, you rip up their olive trees, um, uh, you uh, hack their vines down, this type of thing, which is 
probably not of overwhelming economic significance because, frankly, it's just too much of a pain to do mm -hmm. uh, to actually destroy the economy of the people unless they happen to be an extremely small state and you repeat it year after year with an immense army. But basically, it's a form of humiliation. Mm -hmm. I see. So that, that's, a, that's a good job of kind of setting the, the, the anthropological, if I can so speak, uh, um, stage. Let's actually go through the, the, the war, and we can kind of do it chapter by chapter in your book. Again, I, I encourage people to go out and read it because they're wonderfully written narratives of what goes on here. And, and uh, they, they're just written in marvelous prose. But so after you describe the coming of the war, you, you, you have a chapter, chapter three, called The, the War of Revenge, uh, 431 to uh, 430. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, what basically happens is that the two sides start to um, take revenge upon each other. Uh, the Spartans are supreme on the land, and the Athenians do not dare to face them on the land. So the Spartans and their allies, a very large army, march into Attica, the territory of Athens. The Athenians will not come out and fight them, and so they just wreck everything. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then when they run out of food, uh, they go home. And at the same time, the Athenians... Um, who are supreme at sea, uh, get in their ships and sail around the Peloponnese, which is the area where Spartan and, and its, Sparta and its allies live. Uh, and they sail around and they leap off their boats and they wreck stuff in, mm -hmm. in exactly reciprocal fashion. Um, and um, they, they just continue to do that. Um, and that is, as it were, the rhythm of the war. Mm -hmm. That in each year, with exceptions, but in each year, the Spartans invade and ravage, and the Athenians raid by sea and ravage. Um, and, of course, there's no reason for them to stop, because the Spartans think that they're winning the war by undertaking these successful ravagings. Um, since it's not about the economy, they don't sort of you know, give up and say this is a bad idea. Every time they do it, they're humiliating the Athenians more, and the Athenians are obliged to avenge the Spartan ravaging, mm -hmm. so they have to do it every year too. Mm -hmm. uh, so it just sort of marches on uh, in this fashion. Mm -hmm. um, the war, uh, so leaving aside that sort of basic armature, um, what then starts happening is that other events occur which require revenge from one side or another. So that uh, from the very beginning of the war, uh, a city by the name of Potidaea, uh, which is an Athenian ally in the north, um, uh, is, uh, well, it be has become a Spartan ally and is therefore under siege by the, uh, by the Athenians. When Potidaea falls, that is a thing needing to be revenged mm -hmm. um, because it's a great humiliation to the Spartans who have given, a, given Potidaea a, uh, a guarantee that they will um, uh, be kept safe. And since they failed to do so, now the Spartans need to avenge that. And they look around and they find an equally insignificant city uh, to the north of Athens, a, a very small ally of Athens called Potidaea. Mm -hmm. uh, and they go and they besiege that, uh, which they do, in, do so ineffectually for some time. Um, and uh, so they are, they are acting in that way to avenge a previous defeat. And then as previous defeats pile up on both sides, they continuously act through the war to avenge on both sides. Mm -hmm. um, and so the whole, the major business of the war, uh, leaving aside even the basic armature of revenge, consists of these sort of tit for tat, you know, they did this to us, we have to do that to them. Um, again, it makes no real sense strategically. Neither Potidaea nor Plataea are very important places, but it happens because of the tit-for-tat structure, both sides trying to, to humiliate the other, both sides trying to reduce their own humiliation by taking satisfactory revenge upon the other. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Before we go on with the narrative, why don't we pause for a second to talk about the forces themselves. Uh, what can you tell us about their size and their disposition, the ways in which they moved, their armaments, their tactics, that kind of thing? Well, the, um, the Spartans, um, well, the Greeks in general, uh, at this period, um, are basically emphasize fighting by hoplites, who are heavily armed men with spears and big round shields, who fight each other um, in the phalanx, which is a sort of big roller of men, uh, and you line up with your shields probably overlapped with the guy next to you, and you run forward in a big sort of block of guys, and one block crashes into the other block, 
Um, and then um, it's controversial exactly what happens, but there seems to be a lot of pushing, uh, sort of like an enormous mob scene. Uh, and one side eventually pushes the other one back and they run away. Um, and so that is the sort of basic structure of Greek land battle in this, in this period. And this is a type of fighting that the Spartans absolutely excel at and why the Athenians are, are in many ways reluctant to fight them in battle because they think they're going to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's better to allow the Spartans the lesser humiliation of Athens of allowing them to ravage the Athenian territory than it is of actually defeating them in a battle which would be utterly humiliating and would not really be capable of being avenged. Um, the Athenians, on the other hand, emphasize fighting at sea, and fighting at sea in this period is conducted in great big three banks of oared galleys called triremes with 170 rowers all rowing as fast as they can to get the move the thing through the water so that when it hits the enemy with its ram at the front, uh, it is going to knock a hole in them uh, and let in water and so that the enemy trireme will go blub, 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 mm-hmm. or at least swamp. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Athenians, to the contrary to the Spartans, the Athenians are the experts at this. They have the biggest fleet, probably 300 triremes, of which they can actually put 200 in the water if they need to. Um, And they are the most expert because they have been holding off the Persians uh, with this fleet for 50 years. Uh, They get much more practice than anybody else. Uh, and um, so they are totally superior at sea, just as the Athenian, as the Spartans are totally superior on the land. I mean, one of the things that's exciting about this war is that it's very much a war of people who have different excellences. And that's one of the reasons it lasts so long, because the Athenians will not and cannot face the Spartans in battle on the land. And the Spartans for a very long time until the very end of the war uh, cannot face the Athenians on the sea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. So how many um, men did the Athenians and the Spartans have under arms? And were they constantly under arms? Or how were they levied? That kind of thing. Well, no. I mean, it's, it's all, as you might, it's all very informal. Um, the, the Spartans, uh, because of their odd society, where they do no work and spend all their time training for war, um, they can get their um, population, all, sort of all, their, all their adult men, uh, to war. The problem with the Spartans is they have very few of them. Uh, so we're probably talk- talking about a population, um, total population of adult male citizens at Sparta, something like 5,000, which is pretty small, maybe even smaller than that. Um, the Athenians have a much bigger population, uh, well over 100,000, but there, if you want to go fight, you have to bring buy your own equipment, and hoplite equipment is expensive, uh, and so only a minority, probably, of people can actually do that. Um, and we're told that at the beginning of the war, I think the number is the Athenians have six uh, sixteen thousand hoplites, um, uh, with, <clears throat> with various ones post, posted in various ways. So that's a considerable army very considerable army for Greece, probably the largest single national army or state army that exists in Greece. But nevertheless, they don't dare to fight the Spartans, partially because the Spartans are such good soldiers, partially because the Spartans come with all their allies, which is probably, we can't, we don't have a good statistic, but probably an army of something like thirty or 40,000, mm-hmm. uh, which the Athenians do not feel that they can face. Mm-hmm. Now, did these thirty or 40,000 people ever appear in one place? Was that logistically yeah, possible? They, they, they march into Athens, uh, into Attica, to ravage the crops, they, to challenge the Athenians to battle. They are gathered with you know, such supplies as they can bring, um, and they march in and they do that. But no Greek army has anything we would call a commissary or logistical arrangement. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, you bring your own food or you buy it from someone who's there uh, selling, selling it in a wagon. Um, it's incredibly sort of informal, which means that even when the Spartans are actually cutting down Athenian grain in Attica, they run out of food mm-hmm. uh, between three weeks and uh, three and five weeks, mm-hmm. uh, and therefore they have to go home because they cannot supply themselves. Uh, mm-hmm. So campaigns tend to you either have to move continuously, or campaigns tend to be pretty short uh, because there are no centralized arrangements for um, uh, for commissary. I mean, this is 
to us, this is kind of amazing on the land. It's five times as amazing on the sea where the numbers are huge. If you have uh, 200 men on a trireme, which is probably with the rowers and the other people about where you're talking about, if you have a fleet of 100 triremes, you do the math. That's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. But the way those fleets are supplied is by pulling up in uh, in the docks of a friendly city, and the friendly city brings down goodies and sets up a market for you. Mm-hmm. Um, there seems to be practically no, a little bit more at sea, but practically no sort of, you know, a sense that the state's duty or the commissary or the quarter marshal's duty is to ensure that there is like 30 days of food available. Mm-hmm. That just doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. You bring your own food and the, the job of the army or the navy is to pay you your salary and make sure that there is a market. For you mm-hmm. to get to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What, what, what conventions did they follow concerning, I don't know, the treatment of prisoners or the taking of hostages or uh, this well, kind of thing? Yeah, um, the it's an it's an odd combination because on the one hand they have no real senses of sense of prisoners of war. You can do what you what, what you like with them. Um, uh, so we are in many ways much more merciful than they. On the other hand, in practice, we are less merciful than they because the Greeks um, believed that if you are a prisoner, you become a slave. Uh, And that means that um, suddenly your prisoners are capital. Uh, And the normal procedure is when the war is over that you are going to ransom them uh, or allow the other other side to ransom them back. Um, which means, in the nature of things, because each of those is a very valuable entity, that you take very, very good care of them. Um, and therefore, although we do have instances of sort of groups of prisoners being massacred, by and large, it doesn't happen because they're simply too valuable. Uh, when you capture a man, you not only get his equipment, which is valuable, but you get his person, and you can expect a very nice sum of money to get him uh, for him to buy himself out uh, or his family or his state to buy himself out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a very, it, it's a system which is jurally much less merciful than ours, but in practice, very often more merciful, because in modern warfare, of course, you get no benefit from your prisoners. Um, and therefore, in difficult circumstances, like, for example, at the end of the Second World War, on both the Russian and the German side, just shoot them mm-hmm. uh, because you have to feed them and you're not going to get anything good from them. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, in, in Greece, the last thing you want to do is kill them because they are unbelievably valuable. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, you, when you capture a man, it's like capturing a Buick. Uh, <laughs> I never thought of capturing a Buick, but I see what you mean. Yeah. Um, so let, let's move on to the narrative a little bit. You have a, a, a fascinating chapter called Odysseus's War, and that's uh, 429 to uh, 428. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I'm interested in that period, and Thucydides and the, the story is interested in the way in which the war increasingly becomes a question of trickery. Um, the two sides are not succeeding in accomplishing what they want to. They continue to do it, but with the big revenges and counter-revenges. And they therefore start to emphasize other ways of accumulating honor, and they want to get the better of the other, not only simply by ravaging their country or defeating them, but also by tricking them, uh, also by fooling them in one way or another. Uh, and so you get these wonderful sieges, for example, particularly the siege of Plataea, which I've already mentioned uh, that the Spartans are there because they're taking revenge for another place. But the siege itself is a sort of wonderfully interesting and curious business in which the Spartans come, the Peloponnesians come up and they start building a ramp and uh, to get up to the walls of Plataea. Uh, and that ramp piles up against the wall, and then the Plataeans go under, uh, go, dig through their own wall and start removing the dirt by night. So the Spartans keep piling dirt on the top, and the dirt keeps disappearing, so the mound doesn't get any higher. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Spartans finally figure out, whoa, you know, we're having problems with our mound. So then they start dumping stuff uh, in the holes, uh, big baskets of clay, so it's not, it's not going to be as easy to remove. Then the Plataeans say, okay, if we can't dig it just out through the wall, we'll dig a tunnel underneath, go under the mound, and start removing stuff that way. Um, and you get this sort of 
tennis match of, of acts uh, in which one side keeps topping the other in technical cleverness um, to try to keep this, to try to take the city, to try to preserve the city, to try to take the city, to try to preserve the city. And it becomes, it, it, it becomes uh, what the Greeks would call an agone, a, a, a competition in itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and the eyes of Greece are riveted on this. And everyone's clearly fascinated. What is everybody going to do next? What is everyone going to do next? Um, so it's not the sort of you know war that an Achilles would have fought, but it's a war, the type of war that the most cunning of men, Odysseus, would have fought. Mm-hmm. And the two sides are now competing in cunning, in guile, um, uh, in, 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 in deviousness, uh, in engineering and things like that to, to get the best of each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's fascinating. There's a lot of trickery. And the, and the Greeks admired trickery, did they not? Yes, absolutely. I mean, one must never forget that, um, I mean, the enormous amount of Greek ethics goes back to um, the Homeric poems. And Odysseus, Ulysses, is one of their great heroes. And mm-hmm. he gets, does his stuff because he is the most cunning of men. Um, and they are not... They they are not morally conflicted like we are about the use of cunning. Uh, they admire people who are cunning. Of course, this is true of many Mediterranean societies, but of many of many societies, historical societies too. I have a, a friend who works on um, uh, medieval Catalonia, uh, and there this quality of astuteness of, of 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 cunning is enormously important, and it's something that the king. Will even will even boast of in his communiques to his people. He will say, "I have fooled the neighboring king," and you're supposed to admire him for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is not an unusual, particularly Greek thing at all. Perfectly usual in historical societies, but they very, very much admire this type of thing, and they love competitions in it. Either like at the siege of Plataea, competitions in sort of artifice. Um, but also competitions in things like rhetoric, in talking, in getting the best of people uh, in discussion. Um, similarly, they, they, they would regard that as very much the sort of thing that Odysseus would approve of and that therefore they approve of also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's true in the um, medieval and early modern Russian, I say, oh, to the Slavic context as well, that it's often the case that princes are described as uh, zlomudri, which means uh, sort of uh, smart and cunning. Mm-hmm. But they, this is a, this is really something very good. Ivan the Terrible was supposedly uh, very cunning, and there were a whole series of tales that actually have their origins, we think, um, in um, in the, the in German Transylvania, and they're about Dracula originally. But they get mm-hmm. sort of transported all over Europe about these very clever things that these princes, like Ivan the Terrible, did. But I want to I want to make sure that we have a chance. Well, let me actually ask another question r- regarding. Uh, precisely this, this this cunning we don't think of cunning as a good thing we do think of honor as a good thing Did, mm-hmm. uh, how do you square cunning and honor because it seems to me that the most cunning person would uh, sort of bend the rules of honor in order to get what he or she wanted done well not if cunning is one of the rules of honor <laughs> that, that is that the greeks see the greeks have a, a list of virtues um and um if the more you demonstrate of those virtues uh, the more honor people will give you by praising you. And one of those virtues is cunning. Uh-huh. Um, and so you can make a sort of specialism of being cunning. And one of the things that you see in Greek history is that people do choose a virtue. Um, and so during the Pel- you know before the Peloponnesian War, Themistocles, the guy who leads the Athenians against the Persians, he is the most cunning of men, and he makes that his special speciality, mm-hmm. that he is opposed by an Athenian politician called Aristides the Just, and it will not alarm you or, or surprise you that Aristides the Just is so-called because he is, wait for it, just. <laughs> um, and this is his special virtue, and he wants to be praised for that. Um, uh, and uh, this is very much the way these things happen. Pericles, of course, the great uh, Athenian statesman of this period, his particular his particular competitive virtue is self control, sophrosune, which is the Greek to the Greeks is in many ways the supreme virtue, because they think if you can control yourself, you are a wise man. Mm-hmm. So perhaps the best way to translate sophrosune is the wisdom of self control. Mm-hmm. 
um, and they assume that an ex- a perfectly impassive exterior presentation conveys tremendous inner moral strength. Hmm. Um, and of course, they're not they're not very singular in that. The, you know, the, this is also a very important part of Bushido in Japan. Mm-hmm. Which of course, I'm very interested in. Um, uh, in Spain, uh, in the early modern period, you also have this sort of cult of competitive immobility. But this is what particularly Pericles does. This is how he he uh, he gets on. Honor um, is it's a problematic term in English because it basically to us means both. Um, as it were, rank and fairness. Uh, and to the Greeks, their word time uh, does not really mean fairness. Uh, it means rank and how much people praise you. Um, but they don't see a contradiction like we would um, mm. in uh, if you are famous for being uh, cunning, then you're famous for being cunning and you get your time from that. If you are famous for being just, then you get your time from that. But you're allowed to specialize. <laughs> yes. So, so we're, I, I don't want to run out of time uh, before you tell us how this um, conflict came to an end. Who won? Well, the Athenians win. Uh, the Athenians go into it trying to prove to the world and the Spartans that they are equal in time, in honor, in rank to the Spartans. And the Spartans go into it trying to prove that they are not. Um, and there are you know, many events, many vengeances. But basically, in the end, the Athenians get the best of it by capturing some Spartans on an island in 425 BC. And then when the world looks at it, they basically think that the Athenians are superior uh, in this quality that they're competing for. But the Spartans won't admit it. The Spartans are now playing for draw, uh, and they succeed uh, eventually in getting that draw um, and making the Athenians admit that they are equal to them. And now, since both sides are prepared to admit equality, then the war comes to an end, or this part of the war comes to an end, because I'm writing in this book about the first 10 years of a 27-year war. Um, But because the original intention of the Athenians was to get their equality admitted, and the original intention of the Spartans was to deny that equality, the result is this part of the war, the Athenians win. I see. Let, let me ask a one final uh, question about the book before we close, and, and that is, I, I think I know what happened, um, being trained in institutions that were designed by Germans. I, I think I know what happened to Athenian culture. It mm-hmm. became Hellenic culture and went all over the place. Right. What the heck happened to Spartan culture? Well, Spartan culture basically, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a much sadder story there. Uh, the Spartans, of course, ultimately win the Peloponnesian War in 404 and attempt to try to control much of Greece on the basis of an ever-declining population. Um, and because they simply do not have enough men, uh, they eventually lose. Um, and uh, in the 370s, 360s BC, Sparta is defeated by Thebes, which is a minor power in the Peloponnesian War. Um, And then Sparta gets much of its land stripped from it uh, and becomes a very minor power uh, in the Peloponnese. And it remains a minor power um, during the centuries of Hellenistic domination, occasionally fighting against the Macedonians, but occasionally tormenting its neighbors, but not being a particularly big deal. Um, And then the Romans, of course, come. And in in the Roman Empire, the Spartans have to, like everyone else, find something to do. Uh, And um, they still, you know, they they don't have much territory. They're not a lot of people still. Uh, And so the tragedy is that eventually Sparta essentially becomes a theme park. Um, for visiting Romans. Really? The Spartans maintain their weird lifestyle, um, uh, you know, with a lot of beating and one thing or another. Um, and um, although the pe- number of people involved is much smaller, and it's basically now done as a show, and Romans come to watch. Uh, the most famous Spartan, uh, the most famous Spartan uh, ritual is the, um, the the cult of Artemis Orthia, which is a, a, a situation in which young men, boys of a certain age, 
run towards a um, run towards an altar to try to steal a cheese which has been set on the altar. This is in honor of the of the god Artemis, the goddess Artemis. Um, and the the altar is surrounded by bigger boys with whips, and they grab the little boys and start to whip them. Uh, and by by Roman times. This has become well by late by late Greek times. We think this has become basically a a contest in in being whipped. Mm-hmm. Uh, the person who wins it um, uh, is the person who is the toughest guy in Sparta in his year and becomes famous all throughout Greece for winning what has become a sort of weirdly pervy. Um, uh, uh, um, physical competition. Yeah. It's simply resistance to pain. Um, and the Spartans continue to do this at this little temple that they've had since the beginning of time. And then the Romans come in and they build an enormous theater around the temple. So thousands and thousands of them can come to Sparta during this, uh, during this festival and watch the boys being whipped. Mm-hmm. That is what happens to Sparta. Wow. I did not know that. I did not expect that. So great is my ignorance of sort of, um, of, of classical studies. I did not know anything about the theme park, which was, uh, which was, which was Sparta. Can you recommend a book about that? Has somebody written a book about that? You know, there's not very good stuff about later Sparta. Uh, I cannot, in, I mean, any, any of the normal books with titles like The Spartans, yeah. um, like Paul Cartledge, for example, has a book, um, presu- will presumably, I can't say his certainly does, but will presumably go into this later Sparta stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, I just didn't know that at all. There's a, so anybody out there looking for a, um, a dissertation topic and uh, many years of toil, uh, th- there you go. Cruel yeah. toil. Yeah. Cruel yeah. toil. Yes, you, absolutely. Well, it will not be easy. I, I wouldn't say that it would be Spartan, but it won't, won't be good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's funny because I told my undergraduates recently what the life of a uh, graduate student and a junior professor was like, and they were um, they were surprised. They, they, they not, very often, they very often are. Yes, they, exactly. did, they did not know, uh, nor did they appreciate what you have to go through to do this work. But in any event, I want to say thank you very much, Ted, for being on the show today. It's a, it's a terrific book. It's called "The Song of Wrath: The Peloponnesian War Begins," um, and I'd like to close the interview, if I may, with our traditional final question: and that is, what are you working on now? The moment. I'm writing about Roman rhetoric and not because I'm a historian. I'm not writing about Roman rhetoric for its own sake, but it's interested me for a long time, but Roman education is under the empire, particularly is incredibly narrow that when you're a kid, you basically learn words. And as you get older, you are taught rhetoric. That is to say, giving speeches, uh, particularly the way this is done is by having you give speeches on invented topics it's called <laughs> declamation. Um, and this is, I mean, historically an extremely narrow and peculiar form of education. And then the young men who have this education go out and rule the world and they command the legions of Rome and they become provincial governors and judges and do all this type of thing on, on the basis of this extremely weird education. And it seems to me that it should be possible to draw some links between how they're taught and the nature of this education that they have and what what happens in the world. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just like, for example, you know, we, we, can, we can say obvious things like, you know, we know a certain amount about economics. Our kids learn a certain amount about economics. You can learn about economics in university. Therefore, we send, tend to see problems in economic terms. Mm-hmm. Um, the Romans do not. And therefore, do not. Uh, And they therefore regard even economic problems as moral problems because they have been taught to reason with morality, Mm -hmm. not to count. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so it's it's things like that that I'm 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 trying to work on at the moment to try to see how much looking at this education, how much of what is strange about Roman society, I can blame on this very curious and narrow and specific form of education. So it's very interesting because, you know, it does really speak to our own mentalities. I know that I was part of a discussion the other day about uh, basically how much it costs us as a society to treat uh, homeless people and particularly homeless people who have substance abuse problems. And it costs us a huge fortune. Um, but, but what's interesting to me is that we – it seems to me that 
are looking at it through that economic lens, uh, it sort of occludes in a way uh, the reason that we do it. And that's because we, we think we should be free mm-hmm. and, and, and that we, we think that, um, that, that really it should not be our responsibility to take care of uh, every individual who has made a bad choice. And, I, and, and, that, and those value choices kind of recede into the background uh, when, when you start to mention that it costs, I don't know, several hundred thousand dollars to treat a homeless person for some injury, whereas you could just put them in a drunk tank and let them drink themselves to death. That would be cheaper. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting the way we look at it in that way. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, we take on these lenses, exactly as you say, depending on what our training is. I've, I'm totally interested that you mentioned the homeless thing because I was very much struck. I was recently in Germany for a couple of years. They really they view homelessness in, 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 in a much more sociological way than we do. Um, that we are in many ways more Roman in our view because we are still quite moralistic about it. Yep. Germans really aren't to the same degree. Yep. But again, it's a consequence of the way they're educated. Um, they are even more social science as it yep. were, in their view of social problems than we are. Yep. No, um, yeah, so, no, but yeah. it's absolutely, but but that's precisely what I want to look at in the Roman case. But obviously, they're not; they're to the total opposite of being social. Yeah. No, that's right. No, that's exactly right. And and, and uh, I think it does point up the degree to which sort of values get monetized in our own world and are increasingly monetized. But I, I don't want to go down that road. But I do want to thank you for being on the show. We've been talking to Ted Lenden about his book Song of Wrath: uh, The Peloponnesian War Begins. I encourage you to go out and um, buy it if you can, and and read it because it's a heck of a good book. Ted, thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with J.E. Linden about his book, Song of Wrath, The Peloponnesian War Begins. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. Music.